Good morning, great to see you. Um, and yeah, so this is the third week we're doing in this uh, series, this, this ancient statement of faith. Um, it's a statement of incredibly carefully chosen words that outlines what all Christians believe of any denomination. Of course, there are things that different denominations believe different things about. They have different views on certain beliefs. But this is non-negotiable. You have to believe this. To be called a Christian, you have to believe this. This is the heart. And it's a bit like we, if you have a game of Jenga, um, you know what Jenga is. You're building the tower with the blocks. In a game of Jenga, there are some blocks that you can remove very easily and just reposition without any problem at all. You can just put them. It doesn't make much of a difference. The tower's still standing. But then there are some blocks that if you take that one out, it's so foundational. You move that one, the whole tower comes down. And there are certain beliefs, certain doctrines upon which Christianity stands or falls. These are doctrines that cannot be changed. And if you were to change them or take them out, it wouldn't be Christianity. And um, that's what we have in the creed. The fundamentals, the, the, the foundation of our faith. Be careful not to place things into the foundational stuff that isn't there. But this is the foundation. And it's a foundation that is solid enough to allow there to be, to make space for differing views on other aspects of the Christian faith. For there to be different expressions of Christianity. And so in the first two weeks we looked at God as Father and as Creator. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of the heavens and the earth. And there were two glorious weeks. But if it was left at that, we wouldn't have a full picture of God. Because we know that actually something which marks Christianity out from all other uh, religions and all other, all other belief in God, lots of people believe in God, but it's the Trinitarian nature of God, the mysterious three-in-oneness of God that marks Christianity out. And we particularly start to see this unfolding in the person of Jesus, which is where we've come to um, today, because Jesus is the conclusive revelation of God. God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. And we'll have more on the Holy Spirit in a later week when we get to that part of the creed. But it's in Jesus that we see most clearly that the core of the Christian faith is not a set of abstract ideas or beliefs or behaviours. It's a person. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a person with whom you can have a relationship. That's at the core of the Christian faith. And so today, the focus is on Jesus as Christ. Son and Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, God's only son, our Lord. So I'm going to particularly focus on the divinity of Jesus today. And then in a couple of weeks we'll come to the the virgin birth part of this. So a couple of weeks we're really focusing on the person of Jesus. So very briefly to explain the first part of that, um, the name Jesus, the name Jesus Christ. I mean really it should be Jesus the Christ because you know Christ isn't his surname. It's not like Jesus Jones or you know Christ is a title but the name Jesus itself is significant it means God saves that's already says something about who this person is but also it's the fact that the name Jesus is the name that was given to him that identifies him as a historical person as a as a a real man who rooted in history Uh, he was Jesus of Nazareth he lived at that time in a real place. Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary, an ex-carpenter who had a three-year ministry before being put to death by the Roman authorities. All this happened in history. And of course, his ministry is described in some detail in the four Gospels. So there's already some great significance in the name Jesus. But then when you come to 
Christ, the title Christ, that takes it a step further in terms of the claim of who this person was and is. Because in calling Jesus the Christ, the New Testament writers are pointing to him as the long-awaited Messiah. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Messiah was uh, the anointed one, the one who was, who was promised through all the pages of the Old Testament, the one who was going to come and deliver God's people from oppression and set up the reign of God and come to rule as king. Right? He is the one who would fulfill all of the Old Testament scriptures, including the key ministries you see in the Old Testament. So Jesus is the ultimate prophet and he's the ultimate priest and he's the ultimate king. These are ministries, uh, three key ministries, prophet, priest and king, for which people were anointed in the Old Testament in order to lead the people of God. And so that Jesus, as Messiah, as the Christ, he perfectly fulfills the Old Testament. And he perfectly fulfills those three ministries of prophet, priest, king. And I'll say more about that a bit later. Now there's, there's loads you could say about just that word Christ. About that word Messiah. So I'm skipping over a lot of detail here because I know where I want to get to. But I did just want to very briefly show that even just using the words I believe in Jesus Christ idea that is to already claim some pretty big things about this person he's not just an idea a concept a vague concept no no no. he's a real historical person and also beyond just being a remarkable man in history he was the messiah the anointed one a king anointed by god those are big claims but just that in itself jesus christ doesn't necessarily point to him being divine, the claim that he is actually God himself. But then in the next statement, we've got up there that he is his only son, God's only son, and our Lord. Well, here the creed is moving into a completely different realm of who this person is. Although, as we'll see in a minute, there did need to be some further clarification in a later creed um, to, to be absolutely sure that what the creed is claiming here, what the Apostles' Creed is claiming here is that he is God because even the title Son of God can be interpreted in a way that doesn't necessarily point to divinity. But what the Apostles' Creed is doing here by calling him God's only Son and our Lord, the claim is being made that Jesus, Jesus is eternal, uncreated, fully divine, that he is God. And of course the basis of the creed saying that is the revelation of scripture, which we're going to have a look at. Now, we're going to look at some of the key passages in the New Testament. So we'll start with one which is very familiar to most of us in John chapter 1. Uh, and the first three verses of John chapter 1. Just, just try and listen to this as if it's the first time. Because it's magnificent. It is glorious. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Right? This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is, is the word. Later in the chapter, it talks about the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. This is talking about Jesus. And the Greek word is logos. What is translated word, it's logos. And logos has this sense of the, the deepest meaning in life, the reason in life. The, the foundation of everything and of all creation, the Logos, the Word. 
And so already, in, just in those three verses, if those were the only three verses of the New Testament that we had, you can already clearly see the claim of the eternal nature of Jesus the Son, that there has never been a time when he hasn't existed, because it says he was with God in the beginning, before anything else was created. It says that nothing has been made apart from through him. So he's in the category of creator, and the creator, by definition, can't be created. Because, so the creator must be eternal. And so the claim clearly is that Jesus is eternal, he's uncreated, and that he is God himself. The word was God. That's the claim of John chapter 1. Jesus is eternal, uncreated, fully divine. Hebrews chapter 1 would back this up. So the first couple of verses of Hebrews 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And so God has spoken, not just through his son, but by his son. Because Jesus is the word of God. He is the logos. And do you like the little detail that's just kind of casually thrown in there? Oh, also, uh, he made the universe. I mean, if you think back to last week when Stuart was talking about the universe. And it's it's mind-blowing in its scale and its majesty and its its beauty and its awesomeness. It's just mind-blowing. And here is also, also the universe. It's a bit like we heard last week in Genesis 1, that throwaway line, oh, he also made the stars. It's just mind-blowing. Who, this, who, this, who is this person through whom everything was made? Jesus is the word of God through whom all things are created, and he's the eternal and fully divine son of God. Now, you might think, well, I'm preaching to the choir here. Yeah, I know. I, get, you know, I know that Jesus is the eternal son of God and that all things were made through him, but It is worth understanding that this is a hard-fought-for truth. And it's a massively, massively important truth. So back in the 4th century, uh, in Alexandria, there was a bishop called Arius. And Arius wrote in, in some of his writings, he argued that Jesus was similar to God the Father, but not of the same substance as God the Father. That there was a time when Jesus, the Son of God, was not. There was a time when he didn't exist, he's, he's created, he wasn't eternal, and therefore he's a lesser God, not God. Father, this is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, by the way. Jesus is a God, not God. God the Father, he's the real God. Jesus is important, but he is lesser. But there was a deacon in Alexandria called Athanasius. And Athanasius, uh, he disagreed very strongly with Arius and he confronted him about it. He said, look, you can't, because of what it says in scripture, and we've just looked at a couple of those scriptures, because of what the scriptures claim about Jesus, you cannot say that he's anything other than fully divine and eternal and uncreated, that he is God himself of the same nature, of the same substance as God the Father. So there's this argument going on and the Roman emperor at the time, Emperor Constantine, he, he convenes the Council of Nicaea, which was in Turkey. This was a massively important Christian council. Bishops came from all over the world to be part of this and they overwhelmingly agreed with Athanasius that Jesus is divine, he is God, he is eternal and, they, and that Arius was a heretic. And the story goes, which doesn't mean it's true, of course, but the story goes that one of the bishops, St. Nicholas, was so angry with Arius at suggesting that Jesus is not eternal that he crossed the floor of this council and he slapped Arius across the face. We've got a picture depicting that. That's a, 
That's, that's depicting that, that moment, St. Nicholas slapping Aries across the face. Now, of course, we know that St. Nicholas became known as Santa Claus. So we've got Father Christmas slapping a heretic. Who knew? Think of that next Christmas. Anyway, the result of the Council of Nicaea was the Nicene Creed. Okay, another creed, which was a development of the Apostles' Creed that we've been reading out. So it's longer, which is why we've gone for the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed is longer because it builds upon the truths of the Apostles' Creed to bring clarity on certain areas like this one and to correct heresy where it had arisen. So here's what the Nicene Creed says about Jesus. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, they're trying to hammer this home, begotten, not created, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. The word begotten, it's not one we use very much nowadays. Um, in, an, in a human sense, it's used to describe fathering in the sense that the offspring created between two parents, the offspring is of the same substance, the same essence as the parents. Um, as opposed to if I were to make a cake, well, I've created something, but it's of a different substance. It's not of the same substance. It doesn't emanate from me. It doesn't proceed from me. So begetting has this sense of generating something of the same essence as you, but of course the big difference that is pointed out in the creed with Jesus is that he's eternally begotten. He's not created. And so they were at great pains to point out that Jesus is God. You can't go anywhere else with this. Jesus is God. He's eternal. He's not created. He's of the same substance as the Father. He's of the same nature as the Father. He is God. Okay. Now Hebrews 1 goes on. He tells us a little bit more about Jesus in verse 3. It says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The, what's the, the radiance is the light, isn't it? It's, the bit, it's what you can see, the light that emanates from something. Jesus is the radiance of God. He's what we can see of God. And it says he's the exact representation of his being. In other versions it says he's the exact imprint of God. In the same way that when you have a stamp, like an ink stamp, when you, I better be careful, this broke the other day. When you, when you stamp it and you look at what, you've got an exact representation of what is on the stamp. He's the exact imprint. And so Jesus, because he is God, he shows you what God is like. I mean, Jesus said it himself in the Gospel of John when one of his disciples, Philip, he, he said to him, Lord, show us the Father and, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says to him, one of his kind of exasperation moments. Don't you know me even after such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God because he's of the same substance. And so if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God's love is like, you look at Jesus the one who willingly and sacrificially laid down his life out of love. That's what God's love is like. If you want to know how God feels about the poor, look at Jesus in that. He is the exact representation of his being. And then it says in that Hebrews uh, verse 3, it says, he sustains all things by the word of his power, by his powerful word. The universe is upheld 
by the word of Jesus. Because he is the word. The universe is upheld. Jesus is the one through whom the whole universe was created. Through whom the world came to be and continues to be. And as I was thinking about this, my mind has been blown several times this week. But as I was thinking about this this week, it reminded me of, I don't know if you've ever read The Magician's Nephew, the C.S. Lewis book, one of the Narnia books. And The Magician's Nephew is the one where creation happens. And what happens is all dark. And then, and then Aslan, the lion, starts singing a note. And this note comes out, it's this low, rumbling note, and stars start to appear. And then he changes his note, and it rises, and it falls. And as he sings, grass, and hills, and trees, and beauty, and creation happens. And it just made me think of Jesus just singing. But the point is, he's still singing. He's still singing these notes of creation, and upholding the universe by his word of power. Now all of this paints a pretty huge, magnificent and awesome picture of who Jesus is. You know, the universe can only be sustained and upheld by something far greater than itself. Now we know the universe is mind-blowing. It is majestic, it's awesome. Jesus is magnificent. I mean, words words can't do it justice. He's he's glorious. He's beyond Anything we can imagine. And if he wasn't, this wouldn't exist. Now I haven't got time to go into it, but the rest of Hebrews 1, it just reinforces again and again the divine and eternal nature of Jesus. He's not just an angel, he's not just some kind of super angel, no, he is God. And um, you know, I think all of this is, is so beautifully captured, and we've heard it already this morning from Simon read it out in Colossians 1. I'm just going to read that again because I think scripture captures this far better than I can. So it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, Shed on the cross. And you know that last line there. That's why this matters so much. Who Jesus is. That we are clear. Absolutely clear on who Jesus is. Because if he's not fully God. Well then God didn't come himself to rescue us. He sent somebody else. He sent someone lesser. And if he's not God. He wouldn't have the power to reconcile you to God. Or to reconcile anyone to God. As it says there. To make peace through his blood shed on the cross. It would be insignificant what he did on the cross. His blood would be meaningless because only an infinite God could possibly bear the penalty for the sin of the whole world. Any finite creature couldn't ever bear that kind of thing. And and actually all of scripture is very clear that salvation can only come from God. So you see the glory of all this and the grace, the grace of all this is precisely because he is God. The, the, The staggering fact that this awesome 
majestic being through whom the whole universe was created, who upholds the universe by his word of power, became a man. That, that this, this incomprehensibly powerful, majestic, beautiful being took on the weakness of human flesh and faced the things we face. He faced being tired. God faced being tired and thirsty and hungry. He faced temptation and, of course, ultimately he faced what we all face, which is death. And he willingly and sacrificially died the most abhorrent and agonizing and humiliating death of them all. So that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued and reconciled to God away. Being in very nature God, and it's, it's, it's as it says in, in Philippians 2, Jesus, you know, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and used to his own advantage. No, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him. Therefore he is the name to which every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, the creed, and in that I include the Nicene Creed, which I mentioned earlier, that built on the shorter Apostles' Creed. The creeds, the creedal statements, which are based on Scripture, they simply don't allow you to see Jesus as anything other than fully divine, eternal, the eternal Son of God, of the same substance, the same nature as God the Father. And the creed doesn't allow you to mess around with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity goes like this. Try and... Get your head around this. The the Trinity says this. God is three persons. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. And yet at the same time. There is one God. I mean that is a mind boggling set of statements. I remember uh, staring at those three sentences on a page. I was reading uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You should try it. It's a cracking read. Um, Just staring at this thinking. I can't. No I can't. No, I can't get it. I can't understand it. No, we don't understand it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each fully God, not lacking anything. The Father's fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. But there's one God. They're of the same nature, the same essence. Our God is one yet three, and he's three yet one. And so it's wrong to say or try to explain it away by saying, no, no, you know, there are three gods. The creed doesn't allow you to go there. To say there are three gods. No, there's one God. But it's also wrong to say Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They're just different expressions. They're they're different facets of God's personality. They're not persons in themselves. They're just different manifestations of one person. You can't go there. With orthodox Christianity as laid out in the creed, you just can't go there. You can understand how people do get there in an attempt to rationalise and explain something which is fundamentally beyond our understanding. One God, three persons, fully God, one God. Ah, The creed means you can't do an Arius or, or like a Jehovah's Witness and claim, no, but Jesus, Jesus is a lesser God. God the Father, he's God. No, Jesus is a lesser God. The Holy Spirit is a lesser God. You can't do that. You can't go there. That's why the creed is so important because it attempts to resolve the problem of the Trinity, this three-in-oneness of God that our finite and limited minds can't cope with or resolve. But, you know, I think if I could resolve and understand everything about God with my limited human mind, he wouldn't be God. He would be like me. 
And he's not like me. He's so other than me. Don't ever think of him that he's just like you. He's not. He's God. You know, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's depicted as this joyous, loving union, the the Greek word perichoresis, which describes this dance, this intertwining dance of love and unity and community. And, you know, if you mess with that, if you try to say, no, God the Father is God, then came Jesus. No, no, no. What you have then is a God who is lonely. That God can't be love. That's a God who is lonely and so created out of need rather than out of love. But no, that's not the truth because it's out of the eternal and glorious trinity that creation pours out. Creation flows. It's an overflow of the trinity. It's an overflow of love. It's community. It's family. It's, it's beauty. The trinity is the basis of everything that is good. Don't mess with it. The creed doesn't let you mess with it. It's just glorious as it is. It's glorious. And Jesus is the word. He's the logos. He is the eternally begotten son of God and he is glorious. And he's worthy of worship. In fact, it's only in worshipping him that we find our very sense of being and our reason for existing. And so we come to the last part of that phrase that we're looking at today. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Our Lord. Now that word Lord uh, Greek word is kurios. It, it's another indication of God's divini- of, of the divinity of Jesus because of how the word is used throughout the Bible. But actually, I just want to focus in on the fact that he's not just the Lord. He's our Lord. He's my Lord. Because at the heart of the Christian faith, and this is just so important, at the heart of the Christian faith is the believer's personal submission to the authority of Jesus. He has the authority to receive him as Lord, to declare Jesus as Lord. It's not to have him as a bolt-on or an add-on to your life, uh, a security policy, a lucky charm. No, no, no. It is to submit your life to him completely and say, Jesus, because of who you are, you have the absolute and supreme right and authority to rule in my life and to have the final say in my life. You get to determine what is right and wrong. You get to determine what's a right way to live and what is a wrong way to live. Not society, not me, not the latest fashion or fad or trend or the latest bit of fleeting public opinion that says this or that. No, no, Jesus, you get to determine it. You know, if you claim to have received his salvation, but you live in a way that's entirely inconsistent with his commands, it's like saying, Jesus, I want you, I want your benefits, but I don't want you. I want your rule in my life. No, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And if that's what you say to him, then you have to also say, Jesus, you get to call the shots. You get to call the shots in my life, and I will obey regardless of the cost. Regardless of if it makes me unpopular with people. Or if I hold an opinion that's completely at odds with what the world is saying now. Because that changes every 20 years or so. It's making him Lord over every aspect, every area of your life. Not saying, yeah, Lord Jesus, you can be Lord of this bit, not, but not my money. No, no, no. I, I, hold, I reserve the right to hold on to that. Or Jesus, you can be Lord of everything, but not my relationships, not my sex life. That, that's mine. I keep that separate. You can't do that. You can try. It won't be great though. No, you make him Lord over every aspect and every area of your life. And you know, put it in this perspective. There are literally thousands of names on the wall over there that are depending on that. 
you having Jesus as your Lord. Now I mentioned earlier that Jesus perfectly fulfills the Old Testament functions of prophet, priest and king. So let me just expand on that a little bit and hopefully you'll see why I think that's relevant. So the prophet, the Old Testament prophet, he spoke the word of God very boldly. He confronted sin, he commanded repentance. He's a bold, confrontational truth teller. Well Jesus is the word of God. He's the perfect revelation of God. He brings truth. He brings challenge. He he confronts sin. He commands repentance. Yes, he does. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. What about the priest? The Old Testament priest served the people by acting as a mediator between God and man. Offered sacrifices to God for forgiveness. Jesus is the mediator between God and man because he's the only one who is God and man. And Jesus is the great high priest who came to humbly serve. And he offered, of course, the perfect and ultimate sacrifice of himself, his own life, his blood. He's the ultimate priest. And the Old Testament king ruled his people and demanded loyalty and obedience. Jesus, as we have seen, rules over all creation. There's not one part of our lives that doesn't belong to him. And so he deserves and demands obedience to his commands. Not to make us acceptable to him, but because of who he is and who we are. Now Jesus is all those things at the same time. He's prophet, priest and king. But we so easily get it out of balance at times. Just think about what happens if we under-emphasize any one of those three things. So for example, if you see Jesus or you experience Jesus as prophet and king, but not priest then you focus on truth and obedience. But there's no grace. There's no grace. This is where fundamentalism comes from, this view of Jesus. You'll be legalistic, you'll be judgmental, you'll be lacking in joy, you'll be lacking in love. This is a Jesus who sits on a throne far away and just shouts at you angrily and just demands more and more and never lifts a finger to help you. And if you view Jesus like that, it will either lead you to pride because you think you're very moral and better than other people, Or it will lead you to despair when you realise you can't live up to his standard in your own strength. Or what about if you see Jesus as prophet and priest, but not king? You know what Jesus says. You know what the truth is, but you rule over your own life. You're king of your life, not him. And so Jesus is just someone who comes alongside to help you in times of trouble. To help you achieve your objectives, but only when invited. And seeing Jesus in that way, it will lead to a double life. It will lead to hypocrisy. It will lead to a moral life that is utterly indistinguishable from anyone else who doesn't follow Jesus. Even though you know what Jesus says about those things. You know what the truth is. But you're king of your life, not him. Well, what about Jesus as priest and king, but not prophet? That's what leads to liberalism. Where Jesus is seen as someone who would never offend anybody. Because he's so loving and he's so infinitely patient and tolerant understanding. He would never command repentance. And that leads to compromising with truth, difficult truths, uncomfortable truths. Because we don't want to offend anyone or we don't want to be disliked. And so sinful beliefs and sinful destructive behaviours are condoned and blessed. I wonder if you see any of this in yourself. Do you have any of those things out of balance? If you do, you need to repent. You need to repent and then ask him to help you see a fuller picture of who he is. To give you a greater revelation of who he is and then live your life out of that revelation. Because he will help you. He wants to help you. He wants you to be transformed. That's what he does. 
When you receive him as Lord, when you receive his salvation, he transforms, he changes. And if anyone has the power to change and transform you, it's him. It's this person we've been speaking about today, Jesus, he does. And we all want to be changed, I think. Because I think we're all aware, painfully aware of our flaws and that there's something deeply wrong. We're always trying to be better, whether that's through self-improvement or whether it's through putting other people down to make ourselves feel better, you know, shaming people on social media, whatever it might be. We are deeply flawed, but Jesus brings transformation. I don't know if, has anyone seen Michelangelo's statue of David? Has anyone seen it live in Florence? A few people here. I've never, I've never seen it live in the flesh, but I understand that it's supposed to be absolutely magnificent. It's over five metres tall, it's carved out of marble, it's reckoned to be one of the finest and most spectacular works of its type. It's a masterpiece. Now that statue used to live outside in the town square in Florence, and then it had to be moved inside. And the reason for that was because the marble is actually of quite a poor quality, and so it was deteriorating. So before Michelangelo had got his hands on this, it was this enormous block huge great block of marble, one piece that had been quarried from a nearby mine and um, a couple of other sculptors had got hold of it and they'd seen this isn't very good quality marble and so they'd bored a hole right through it, right through the base, bored this tunnel right through to try and find some good marble so they can chip away all the bad stuff and then use the good stuff to make something amazing. But they didn't find any good marble and so it was just discarded. This block of marble was just left discarded for years But Michelangelo got hold of it and he saw possibilities that others couldn't see. And he turned this flawed and low-grade block of marble into this spectacular, beautiful work of art, this masterpiece. That's what the gospel does. That's what Jesus does. When you receive him as Lord, that's what he does. He takes something which is deeply flawed, weak, messy, messed up, which actually others might give up on, particularly if they knew everything about you, if they knew your deepest and darkest thoughts. But God, even though he sees all of that, he knows everything about you, he sees someone so precious, he sees someone who's been made in his image, someone for whom he was willing to give everything, his own life, he was willing to die for you because you're so precious. And he's the master sculptor, he's the creator who speaks the universe into being, who upholds the universe by his word of power. And in his hands, he'll start to shape you. He'll start to change you. He'll start to mold you into something new, something beautiful. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. This is a journey which goes over your whole lifetime. He's changing you, shaping you, and on into eternity. But you know what happens eventually? You're a new creation. He doesn't just change your form. He changes your substance. It's like replacing the the dodgy marble with the the highest grade marble that there is. He transforms a new creation filled with the life of God. Again, Colossians 1 sums this up beautifully. I'm just going to finish by reading this. This comes after the bit I read before. It says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, 
established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. He will present you holy in his sight, free from blemish, free from accusation, a masterpiece, work of art. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord. Do you? Do you? Have you submitted your life to him? Have you given yourself fully to him? Don't hold back from him. Don't hold any part of your life back from him. Why would you? No, come to him today. Come to him in worship. Come to him in submission today and just see what he does in you. Amen. Amen. Amen.